Welcome to the audio podcast of the sermons from First Reformed Church in Edgerton, Minnesota. For more information on First Reformed, go to edgertonfrc.org or our Facebook page. We have all seen instances when siblings aren't necessarily what we would call so nice to each other. It's a normal thing. I enjoy leading people on when they don't know about the story of my life, actually, when it comes to sibling cruelty. I will let on that I have a sister, and then I'll add that I don't ever remember once in my life having a fight with her when I was a kid. People will absolutely look at me in disbelief. In fact, I have been on many occasions been called a liar. They tell me this, and I insist that I am absolutely telling the truth, and I love to leave them on the hook as long as possible to have a little bit of fun, and then I'll eventually let them know that my only sibling and I are 15 and a half years apart, and I don't remember her living at home. I honestly do not remember her living at home other than coming home from college. But as I've mentioned in the past, This sibling cruelty is something that I have observed as a child through my friends, and quite honestly, I was very happy that I didn't have to go through that. As much as I badly wanted a sibling to play catch with or shoot baskets with or whatever other fun things you could do, uh, I never once envied my friends who had siblings close in age when they were torturing each other. Never once did I say, gosh, I wish I could do that. Well, as we return to our journey through Genesis after our little break for Palm Sunday and Easter, we find ourselves in a passage that tells us of one of the most famous stories of sibling cruelty that there is. A few weeks ago, we dropped into Genesis 37, and we found ourselves moving on from the story of Jacob and getting a better insight into the stories of his children, We had met them in the past, and so when we came to that passage in Genesis 37, we saw a handful of familiar names. But now we're getting insights into their lives and seeing how the promise of God is going to continue on into the next generation. Specifically, we're getting to know Joseph, Joseph, and, and we have seen his status of being the favorite child in that passage that we looked at a few weeks back. Now, the passage not only showed us that he was the favorite, but also let us know that perhaps that favored position had gone to his head a little bit. Joseph had been having dreams of how he is not only bowed down to by his 11 brothers, but the second dream we read about showed that his father and mother would also bow down before him. Now, that seems like a bit of an ego trip, but as the story of Joseph continues, we know that God has something big in store for Joseph. And in the sovereign plan of God, his dreams are going to come to pass. And he is going to be used by God to protect the covenant people of God. And so with this context in mind, we now approach the passage that we looked at today. And we're going to dig into it, and we're going to break it down beforehand, though, so we have our points lined out for us. So the first part of this story, we're going to be looking at the part that tells us about Joseph being sent to his brothers. As we think back to what we saw a few weeks ago, 
We remember that Joseph had a reputation for ratting out his brothers. That always makes you popular with your siblings, right? Well, we can't know why Joseph is at home instead of out in the field with his brothers, but we see that Jacob uses his favorite son to check in on the rest of his sons in the first part of our story for today. Secondly, we see that the brothers hold a grudge against Joseph. In these verses, we see how important the story about the dreams and the favoritism are to the narrative of the whole story of Genesis here. That story helps us to understand how the brothers become so filled with this hateful resentment towards Joseph. And finally, we find that Joseph is actually sold into slavery and is separated from the covenant people of God. Once again, the plot of the story in Genesis is unexpected. Aren't things supposed to be good for the people that God favors? Shouldn't the favorite son of Jacob be exempt from these kind of struggles? But God is telling his story, not the story of human achievement or excellence, but of his faithfulness. And so we find ourselves in this familiar story of Joseph, well, he, and we find that he is at home and his brothers are out pasturing the flock. Now the text doesn't give us an indication of why this is set up this way. Why is Joseph at home and the rest are out and about? I don't know about you, though. I do get kind of a feeling from the way the story is told here, the way the story progresses, that this might have a little to do with this favoritism thing that we had read about before. Sure, maybe Joseph's skills are better used close to home, but you would think that maybe he would be required to pay his dues a little, right? I mean, we've all got to go out into the field. Yes, you're my favorite, Joseph, but it's going to look bad if I keep you at home. You would think maybe they would send him out, but Jacob doesn't. And clearly, he's old enough to be in the fields. He's old enough to be helping them out because Jacob sends him out to check on him by himself. And we sort of feel that the previous mention of his tattling and his telling on his brothers comes into play here a little bit. Moses gives us this detail about him telling on his brothers, and it helps us to imagine the mindset of Jacob here. He's being sent out, and he's going to find out if the brothers are doing what they're supposed to be doing. And so now we understand what the mindset of Jacob is, the mindset of Joseph, and how his brothers are actually going to receive him. And we find Joseph to be particularly willing to do the bidding of his father as we read this passage. He's obedient to do what his father asks of him. And we get an idea that he is particularly obedient. And while we've gotten a a little bit of a vibe of smugness in the telling of his dreams, we do know that the character of Joseph is exemplary. We know his stories. We're going to see this throughout his life here in Genesis. In fact, I always say that he is one of only a few Bible characters who come out smelling good at the end of their life, that they look good through the, through the whole duration, right? And this is visible with how Joseph responds to his father. He says, here I am. Now, 
That isn't the way that you or I would let someone know that we're going to do what they've asked of us. If someone asked us to do something, hey, would you mind moving that box over there for me? Here I am. Okay, that's not how you and I would reply. But the idea, well, actually you and I would say, um, or if, if someone were to do that to us, would you move that box for me? And they replied, here I am. They'd say, yeah, that's why I asked you. I'm not blind. But that's not what's going on in the text. What's being conveyed here by Joseph is the idea of his obedience, the idea of his faithfulness to do what his father asks. I am here to do your bidding. I'm here to do. I am a faithful servant of you, Father. And while we naturally might look down on Joseph because he is that tattletale and he comes across as a little arrogant with those dreams, what we get from this is a sense that he is the good son. He is the faithful one. He's the kind of guy that you and I can trust. He'll do the job. And we see here that he is diligent in the duty that has been assigned to him because, remember, Joseph isn't going out with a GPS signal on the flocks. He doesn't know where they are. Imagine trying to find nomadic shepherds. Okay? This is not an easy task. Joseph has to seek out his brothers, and it's tough. And the feeling in the text here is giving us this idea that this isn't easy, that time is passing, that he is struggling to find them. Now, I'm not talking weeks or even days here that maybe it takes him to find them, but just that there is enough time and wandering that there is substantial separation from Joseph and the other sons of Jacob and from the rest of the people. The idea in the text is that Joseph is moving away from the covenant people of God. He is out there in the wilderness by himself. This is not necessarily safe. That's the idea that's being conveyed here. And so when we get this idea of separation, we also see it in how the next part of our passage plays out when we see the grudge that the brothers have. Okay? As we start reading it, we see verse 18, and you wonder if maybe that coat of colors was a bit of a drawback for the fortunes of Joseph. Perhaps the brothers could tell it was Joseph from a long ways away because of that coat. Because you weren't going to confuse Joseph with some other random shepherd on the road wearing a coat of many colors. It might also have been to his detriment because he was wearing it in the first place. Now, I get dressed up and I put on a tie for y'all, put on the jacket for Sunday morning, But if I was coming out to see you in the fields or to ride in the truck with you, I'm probably not going to get dressed up like this. No offense. But this is a Sunday morning thing, right? What is he doing wearing a coat of many colors, this robe, out into the pastures? Is there a little bit of arrogance here? A little bit of I'm daddy's favorite here? What's going on? He is reminding the brothers as they see him in this coat that dad has decided that he's the little prince, that he's the favorite. But regardless of what the brothers think of the attire of Joseph, we still have a, well, that escalated quickly moment in the text, don't we? Um, I think we can all hear a snotty and sarcastic response as we read this text from what they're saying. Here comes this dreamer, right? We can hear that. We probably would have said it that way too, right? But the next sentence sort of knocks you back on your heels, right? We go from here comes that dreamer to let's kill him and throw him in a pit. 
wait, what? Say that again now. You want to do what now? I think we would probably have all participated in the biting and derisive talk about him being a dreamer and being daddy's little favorite. But I would like to think that none of us would think ending his life and throwing his lifeless body in a pit is a good next step in the process of not liking our brother. And I think this tells us something about the nature of their relationship. While their activity is not in any way justifiable, and it is to be condemned, there is more to this story than just a regular sibling rivalry. This is embedded with all kinds of issues of inheritance, of superiority, of their family structure in this time and era of history. You you and I can't even begin to understand it. Again, not justifying the taking of anyone's life, but we have to understand the tension that all of this family structure has caused in all these brothers. Now, as we see that one of the now now as we see one of the one of the brothers speaks up to spare the life of Joseph, and it's actually really significant that it's Reuben. Now, it's been a while, but think back to what happened that caused Reuben, who is the oldest, to lose his birthright and the inheritance that comes from his position as the oldest. If we were to turn back to chapter 35, we'll be reminded of the story that Reuben did something here that wasn't popular with Jacob. I'm going I'm to bring it up here. Notice what it, what it says. You may remember this part of the story when we were there uh, quite a while back. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now, Reuben here isn't just sticking up for his younger brother here. He's not necessarily acting all heroic, because he's probably trying to win some points with his father. He's made a mistake that moved him from being in the favored position to being in the position of inheritance, and he also likely sees himself as a protector, being the oldest, And so he figures if he saves Joseph, well, maybe I can move back up in my father's sight from what happened in the past. And so we get some insight into his little plan here. He doesn't flat out tell them, no, we aren't going to do this. He's going to have them throw Joseph into one of the pits, and then he is going to come back and rescue him. Now, I've read and I've heard this story a lot of times. It's a Sunday school favorite, right? But until I slowed down and considered what Reuben's status was before Jacob, I didn't see this before. I didn't get this. This vibe that's going on here. I'm going to redeem myself before my father. Now, I'm not going to take away from him the fact that he saved Joseph's life. That's a good thing. But I think we get the idea that the rescue he is planning isn't so much about rescuing the favorite son. It's more about making his other brothers look bad and making him look good. Reuben may have had inappropriate relations with Bilhah, and that may have really upset his father. It did really upset his father. But that isn't nearly as bad as trying to kill the favorite son, the prince of the family, and then make it look like he was killed by an animal. He's going to score some points here. And so we have two bits of plotting going on here in the text. 
And Joseph is clueless. He is oblivious. He's just wandering across the wilderness in his fancy, colorful robe, not knowing any of this is going on. Imagine being Joseph and showing up and being stripped of your robe and being thrown into this dry pit. I'm guessing up to this point in his life, this was the worst day he had ever had. This is not good. There he sits in a dry pit, wondering what is going to become of him. With his history of telling on his brothers, I'm guessing he didn't think he was going to make it out alive, right? You know he thought his brothers would fear the wrath of their father for throwing him in this pit. Now, we don't have all the dialogue of the interactions that happen here, but perhaps Joseph used that famous little brother line, you are going to be in so much trouble when I tell dad. I mean, I can almost hear it echoing out of the pit, right? If you imagine hard enough, you can tell there's probably some interesting dialogue going here that isn't in the text. And if Joseph had no idea that his brothers resented him so much, he now has a pretty good idea of their antipathy, antipathy towards him. And along with Joseph, we are left to wonder, what is going to happen? What is God in his sovereignty going to ordain to happen? And, and how will this shape the story of the people of God? And we see the resolution to the story as we move into the final section and our final point for today, that God ordains of all things that this favorite son, this righteous one, this willing servant is going to be sold into slavery. And once again, you can get an insight into my my weird sense of humor by how I react to verse 25 here. I think the way Moses tells the story here is kind of funny. I really do. Uh, They sat down to eat. It's time for a break, boys. We just contemplated killing our brother, but instead we threw him into a pit. Let's have lunch. What a hard day's work. We deserve a break. Let's see what the servants packed in our lunch boxes while our brother is down there. What are we going to do with him? We either have to kill him or let him starve. Let's have lunch. But as they sit down to dine, we see that the wandering of Joseph to find his brothers has caused the timing of his arrival to sync up very well with a traveling caravan. In the divine plan of God, something important is happening. Joseph is not going to meet his end at the bottom of that pit. And Reuben is not going to be able to use this rescue of Joseph idea as a means of returning to good standing with his father. Instead, Joseph is going to be taken far away from the people of God and far away from the land of the promise. We have to remember this as we consider this text because the promise is is being passed along here in Genesis from generation to generation. Not only the promise of the seed of the woman, the Messiah that was to come, but also this promise that one day they would inhabit the promised land. The children of Abraham would own this land. And now Joseph, who we have been given a clue is who the story is centering on, the one we're going to be following, he's not only taken into slavery by the Ishmaelites, who are enemies of Jacob's family, but he's being taken out of the promised land. He's being taken out of where the people of God are supposed to be and away from the covenant people of God. 
what is God doing? This doesn't seem how, how the story should resolve. What is God doing? Does he have a plan, like at all? And it's also important here that we notice who the good guy is in the story. Now, remember, Reuben has lost his status as the one who has the birthright, and in the future we will discover that the promise is going to rest on the offspring of Judah. And here we see that Judah is the one who actually saves the life of Joseph. Now, he sells him into slavery, but he is right, and it is good that he avoids the shedding of blood by his brother. Now, one point of clarity here that you might have noticed as we were reading through the text. At at one point, the text calls the people who are coming Ishmaelites, and another time, it calls them the Midianites. We don't know why this is done, why the terms are used interchangeably, but this isn't the only place it happens in Scripture, so Moses isn't confused. Perhaps it's because the two groups intermingled, or perhaps there were both Midianites and Ishmaelites in the caravan. But regardless, the idea being conveyed to us is that these are people who are outside of the covenant. These are not the people of God. The son of Jacob is moving away from the covenant people, and he is sold into slavery for the going rate of a slave back in those days, 20 shekels of silver. And of all places, our young protagonist, Joseph, finds himself on his way to Egypt, moving far away from the presence of God, from the presence of the people of God. But we do have some loose ends to wrap up in this story before we look at our application. What about the plot of Reuben? And what do they do to tell Jacob that Joseph isn't around? Because they most assuredly aren't going to run home and tell him that they just sold the little prince into slavery in Egypt. So what happens here? Now we don't have a complete understanding here of how this all works out, but Reuben obviously didn't have lunch with his brothers and interact with the traveling caravan. So he comes back, doesn't find Joseph, and he is upset. So much so that he tears his clothes. Now this is a sign of grieving, and we get a hint that he was hoping for redemption in this plan of his, right? Essentially, he says, what am I going to do without Joseph? This was my plan, and it's been foiled by the actions of my brothers. And now the brothers are in all of this pretty deep, right? And they need to come up with some sort of plot, which they did when they were plotting his death in the first place. And so they act it out. They slaughter a goat. They dip the coat in blood. And you know the story. Jacob falls for it. Now, isn't this an interesting turn of events? Think about this. The deception of a father. Where else in Genesis do we see the deception of a father? And who did it? Remember back to Jacob and Esau? to get the birthright, to get the blessing. Remember that? Well, now it's happening to Jacob. Turn about his fair play, I guess. And just like Isaac, Jacob falls for it because the evidence is just too good to be true. And it's likely this kind of thing happened occasionally in these times, right? You're out by yourself like Joseph was and was likely that they they had a knife at their side to protect themselves you probably would not survive an attack like the one the brothers are insinuating happened to Joseph. And we see that Jacob grieves, but this is for the life of his son. He not only tears his clothes, 
but puts on sackcloth and he mourns for many days. And despite the comfort that the sons and daughters try to give him, he refuses it. Joseph was clearly his favorite, and he has no problem showing it. And we get the feeling that he wouldn't have done this for anyone else. Sure, he would have mourned, but Moses makes sure that we know that he not only tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth, but he also says this phrase, that I'm going to go down to Sheol, still mourning Joseph. In other words, I'm still going to be grieving after I breathe my last. And if that wasn't enough, Moses lets us know that Jacob weeps for Joseph. And then we get this nice little transitional word to remind us that despite all this grieving, Joseph is not in fact dead. All the talk of grieving and and our feeling sorry for Jacob here might have caused us to want to grieve right along with uh, Jacob. But the text brings us back to the actual truth. Joseph is alive. And of all things, he has already been sold and he has ended up, of all places, in Egypt in the house of Potiphar. And as we finish this story up, it is in this underlying truth of God's guiding hand that we can find our point of application for today. And so the first truth that I want us to be reminded of in this story is that God is in control. Despite the appearances in this passage, we know that God is the one who's at work. And we've seen this throughout Genesis. Things seem desperate. It seems as though God is scrambling to figure this out. But in all those situations where the promises of God seem to be in doubt, they are actually shown to be most sure that God is in control. Despite the death of Abel, God provided Seth. Despite a worldwide flood, Noah was safe in an ark of salvation. Despite the barren womb of Sarah, Isaac was born. Despite Despite the little prince Joseph being sold into slavery, God is at work. Slavery in Egypt is nothing for God. And in fact, God is going to be glorified in it all because he rescues his people. That's what God does. We saw it last week with Easter. God rescues his people even from death. And that's the second idea that I want us to remember in the coming week. God uses even the worst of circumstances to bring glory to himself. As I drew out a minute ago, it's as if Joseph is dead here, isn't it? That's the idea Moses wants us to feel, that Joseph is as good as dead. He has been sold to those who are not the covenant people of God. He has been removed from the land that they were promised And it is is as if Joseph is dead because we are so deeply brought into the story of Joseph's great grief that we feel the grief right along with Joseph. But Joseph is not dead. God is going to use Joseph's slavery and his apparent death to save his people. Does that remind you of something? Does that remind you of something? You know, a little something that we celebrated just a week ago? 
Because the Lord Jesus was taken away against his will. And it was not as though he was dead. He was actually dead in the grave. But God used the worst possible circumstances to save his people. And just as Joseph was alive, Jesus was resurrected. And though everything was against God winning victory, God did win victory. Because he keeps his promises to his people. God wins victory for us. You and I can rest in the truth that he is a God who cannot be stopped by these things of human plotting. Instead, he brings salvation to his people because he keeps his promises. And so may you and I be a people of God who through the varied circumstances that come at us in life, may we trust in the salvation that God brings to his people. If God can defeat being sold into slavery, he can defeat what you're facing in your life. He has defeated sin, death, and hell for you. May we trust that our God is a covenant God and a God who keeps his promises because he is glorified in saving us, his people. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Edgerton First Reformed. For more information on First Reformed, navigate to our website, edgertonfrc.org, or our Facebook page.